Hey y'all and welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren and today we are wrapping up our Easter study called Fulfilled, the unexpected story of the Redeemer. We've been studying through the last weekish of Jesus's life through the words of Matthew and I have loved drawing the line from the Old Testament to the New. Um, if you'd like more information about this study, you can find it on my website at feastingontruth.com fulfilled. We closed out the story in Matthew 28. And as we once again look through that lens of Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Hey y'all, and welcome to the fourth and final week of Fulfilled, the unexpected story of the Redeemer. This has been um, a beautiful picture uh, through Matthew's words of Jesus's last week-ish uh, of life. And we've been studying through um, the lens that of intent that Matthew writes. So Matthew writes with a few um, purposes in his gospel. We learned that in week one as we talked about context. And so um, one of those is that we look for Jesus as Messiah. Um, another is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you'll remember, Matthew quotes more Old Testament scripture than any of the other gospels. Um, and so tonight um, we come to the greatest day in all of history. And so before we dive in, I want to pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. And thank you that you um, knew we couldn't do it on our own. And yet you still came, Lord, that you came and you paid the price and that you, um, but that you did not stay dead. Lord, I just pray that as we come to Easter Sunday, Lord, as we come to Resurrection Sunday, Lord, that we would come with eyes to e see and ears to hear. Lord, speak to us and teach us about you, the resurrection and life. Lord, um, that we would um, shift our perspective toward one that is eternal, Lord, that looks to what your resurrection accomplished for us. Lord, um, please use my mouth May it be filled with your truth and may um, you teach in this moment what we should know. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So as I talked about, um, Matthew has these kind of intense and um, so he, we have been seeing that really heavily on the um, fulfillment of the Old Testament. And um we left uh, in chapter 27 ended with Jesus being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Um, Matthew has the shortest account of the resurrection, which I find really interesting. I read a couple things. One um, suggested that his audience would have been really familiar with this story. And so he didn't feel the need to um, put any further details. But I thought this one was really funny that um, uh, ancient writers would want to use the whole scroll. And so if he was coming to the end of his scroll that he would have to hurry up and wrap the story up. So um, I'm not actually sure why. And I look forward to asking him someday when we get to heaven, but um, let's go uh, to the word. So let's start Matthew 28, chapter one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he has said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there um, they will see me. So timing wise, this is after Sabbath. Now Sabbath would have ended the night before at sundown, but that wouldn't be a safe time to go to the tomb. And so they wait till first light till morning. Um, so we are um, on the morning after Sabbath has ended. Um, and I wanted to give just a kind of quick background information about these stones that would be in front of these tombs. So this type of tomb was for someone who was wealthy, which we know that Jer Joseph of Arimathea was part of the elite. And so um, they were often sealed with these large discs of stone. So probably about three feet in diameter. And it would have been rolled into a groove so that it would not be able to, it wouldn't roll or move or anything. Um, and so um, it, it would stay in place. And, and there is absolutely no way that this stone could be rolled away from the inside. And so um, there is an earthquake and an angel of the Lord comes and rolls the stone um, and sits on it. And um, there's a description of his appearance and it very much mirrors other um, places in scripture. Um, in Daniel 10, 5 through 6, it says, I lifted up my eyes and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like burl, his face was the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like gleaming, the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words sounded like a multitude. So you see kind of the similarity of, of seeing an angel of the Lord, um, the appearance of lightning, the fine linen clothes, um, the, the um, kind of overall uh, glorious appearance. And um, he says to the women, do not be afraid. We actually see that very often in scripture when, a, when an angel appears, he says, do not be afraid. Um, so I think that that kind of gives us an understanding of what it was like to actually see an angel. Um, and he says, I know that you are seeking Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. These are the, the most amazing words in all of scripture. He is risen just as he said. Um, and as I was really studying this week, I think one of um, the questions that um, I asked is, why does the resurrection matter? Um, the curtain has been torn, the price, the blood has been spilt um, to cover the Passover lamb has been sacrificed, the unblemished um, representation. Um, Jesus was the unblemished Passover lamb that um, covered 
our sin and then the curtain tore and opened access to relationship. And so one would think, okay, it's done. But why is it that Jesus needed to raise from the dead? And um, if we go to John chapter 11, this is when um, Lazarus has died. And this is within a few weeks before his resurrection um, and his death. Um, And if you'll remember in the story, he tarries. He doesn't come immediately when he hears word that Lazarus is sick. Um, And so he comes and um, Martha comes out to meet him and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And this is how Jesus responds to her. He says in John 11, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. The theme of life runs throughout all of scripture and the resurrection matters because it is a symbol of, uh, of what God does for us. Um, so first of all, it proves his deity because he is not dead. Our God is not dead. He is alive and very much still living and very much still active and working and moving in our lives. Um, but two, that that picture of resurrection, that that death to life um, is what he does for us. If you remember in Romans, it talks about how we are dead in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. Um, and without God, we are condemned. Without his hope, we are dead. But because of Jesus Christ, through him, we can experience resurrection. Though we die, yet we live. Everyone who believes in him shall find eternal life. It reminds me that he did not come just to make the bad good. He didn't come just to cover the sin so that we would be good people. He came to make those who are dead alive. And in bringing life, he defeats death and he defeats Satan. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death, who um, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There was a fear of death before Christ's death, but he came to put an end to death, that the power of death, the fear of death, that we would no longer be slaves to that that we then would be able to walk in freedom. And in doing so, in defeating the one who has the power of death, defeating the devil in his resurrection, he fulfills the very first messianic prophecy that we see in Genesis chapter three, um, as God is um, giving out the curses for the fall after Adam and Eve have um, eaten of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and they're hiding in the garden. God comes and he curses um, the man and he curses the woman and he curses Satan. And this is the curse that he puts 
on Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan came at the heel of Jesus, but Jesus crushed his head. Um, he forever um, defeated the one who has the power of death. And because of that, because of that now, death has no sting. Death has no victory. And, and he, his resurrection fulfills Hosea 13, verse 14. I'm going to read it in the NIV. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? And Paul in 1 Corinthians, he has this amazing, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. And it's a great passage to read as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Um, but he actually quotes this passage in, um, in verse 54. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the moral puts on the mortal puts on the mortality. So that's a reference to the surrender of your life to Jesus. When we surrender our life and say that you are Lord and Savior and that I am going to follow you, we who are perishable put on what is imperishable. Um, that is pointing us to eternity. Um, he says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in victory because of his resurrection, because he lives we no longer fear death. We are no longer slaves to the fear of death. And we have been delivered into victory. And now because we have victory over death, we also have hope. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We no longer have to fear death. Um, Paul talks about in um, Philippians how to live is Christ and to die is gain. It has completely flipped upside down. This was so unexpected that he would flip upside down that which the enemy means for evil. God has created victory through Jesus Christ's resurrection. And now we have hope. Amen. And so the angel tells the women to go tell the disciples. And it says that they depart quickly with fear and great joy. Did y'all catch that? This, this fear and this great joy, this kind of co-mingling of things that seem like they should be opposite. Um, I wanted to double check and make sure that the word fear didn't mean reverent awe. Um, and it didn't. It actually means here panic, afraid. They were scared. Um, and there were lots of reasons to be scared. His body wasn't there. I'm sure they, they knew what had just happened to him. And so I'm sure there was fear for what was going to happen to them, to the disciples. Um, 
And yet at the same time, they were filled with great joy. Um, the Greek word for great literally means in the widest sense. It made me think of as a kid when you're like, how much do I love you? And you're like, I love you this much. And you spread your arms way out as wide as you can get them. That is how great their joy was. They had this fear, this panic, but yet at the same time, joy, because God, because um, Jesus was not in the grave. But yet, let's not forget, they were fearful. And then they behold Jesus. Jesus comes and meet him. And it mentions the fact that they grabbed his feet. This was not some angelic holographic you know, uh, image of this was not Obi-Wan coming back to talk to Luke in his ghost-like uh, state. This was Jesus in flesh and blood before them and they grab his feet and their fear melts to worship. This reminds me so much of the truth that where we look matters. One of the most powerful, I think, places we see this in scripture is in Exodus when the Israelites are on the edge of the Red Sea. Um, there's actually uh, the language of the scripture talks about how God says, go to the edge of the Red Sea and face toward this way. And he tells them to face forward. He tells them to face toward himself because what was before them? God, his very presence in the pillar of cloud. And it says that as they heard Pharaoh's chariots coming, it says they lifted their eyes and they were filled with fear. When we take our eyes off Jesus, when we look toward our circumstances or toward our fear, then we, um, away from him, then we will be filled with fear. But when we look upon our savior, when we focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, when we look to him and remember who he is and what he has done, then our fear gives way to worship. And it was in that place of fear where God meets them. Jesus meets them. And he says again, do not be afraid, but go and tell the disciples. Um, and <laughs> y'all, this is to me just such a beautiful um, picture of who our Jesus is. Um, because the very first people to deliver the news of his resurrection were women. And both Jewish and Roman law said that the testimony of a woman was not reliable that it was less than valuable. But yet it was women who were noted being at the cross. It was women who were noted being at his burial, watching him be wrapped in those linen cloths. It was the women who were there at the ceiling of the tomb. They had been there every step of the way to confirm that God, Jesus was dead. He was buried. The tomb was sealed, but now he is not there. He is risen. And these women go to be the ones who will bear the good news, who will tell the first people who will tell of the good news. We've seen how Matthew has kind of drawn these comparisons between characters throughout um, this study, how he kind of points to, um, you know, we saw that with, with the uh, Judas and with Jesus. We saw it with the woman and with um, Judas. And so here again, we see 
these women, the ones that they expected to be false, um, compared against the one that you expected to be true. And um, it's a reversal of what one would expect. Because then we see the guards um, who were there coming to the chief priests. Uh, back to the scripture, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So one of Matthew's purposes, as I said earlier, is that we are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, And um, he was raised from the dead. The guards witnessed it. And they went to the chief priests and told them the truth. And y'all, when the chief priests were confronted with the truth, of what happened, they yet again chose to be their own gods. They wanted their own way more than they wanted God's way. And we see them here bribing and manipulating the story as a way to try to cover it up. But y'all, God's truth cannot be covered. God's truth will always reign and always come out. The reason why it's false, I mean, one, it is highly unlikely that someone would roll the stone away while someone was asleep. This is a massive, huge stone. It's not quiet. There's no way you would sleep through that. And two, there were stiff penalties for sleeping on the job. And that's what we see here. They give them a sufficient sum of money and, and, and basically tell them to say that they did something that was dishonorable, that would get them in big trouble. And they said, but don't worry, we're going to protect you if it happens. Y'all, they knew the truth, and yet they still chose their own way. It challenges me that in the face of God's truth, do I act as Mary and Mary and all the Marys, the women who are there? Do I tell truth? Do I turn my heart toward truth and toward great joy at his truth? Or do I continue to stubbornly put my foot down and want my own way. Um, So now Matthew jumps to Galilee. So remember back in um, chapter 26, he said, when I'm gone, I will meet you in Galilee. And so we see the fulfillment of that here. They go to Galilee um, and um, we get what is called the Great Commission. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They come, some worship and some doubt. But ultimately, all 11 believe because 10 of those 11 lose their life. John is the only one who is not killed or uh, as a martyr. He actually um, dies in exile. 
Um, but the, they all like, we are all sitting here. We are all here believing because of the obedience of these men to do this, to go and tell and the women and, and, and their obedience, we are their inheritance. And yet, and so here we are, like, I want us to, to be just thankful for their obedience to go and tell. Um, and Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This fulfills a couple prophecies. Um, we see Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which we mentioned um, a couple weeks ago. I saw in the night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. Do you guys hear the similar language here? His dominion is an everlasting dominion and which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This points to the eternal nature of God's kingdom. It is forever. It is everlasting. It cannot be destroyed. It will be victorious. Um, and he is as the son of man, as the son of God, the glory has all glory in a kingdom that is for all people. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Eternal kingdom. And on the throne of David, so again, we see um, that kingly line of, of Judah through David that leads to Jesus and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He has been given all authority because Satan has been defeated. And because of that, he says, because of my authority, because I have authority and my kingdom is established from here on out, here is what I want you to do. He says, go. Um, the Greek actually has this intonation of as you are going. Um, it is not a go destination, tell, convert, done. Go, tell, convert, done. It is a, it is part of this process of as you are going. And this is something that would have been very familiar to them um, because of Deuteronomy 6, which um, is the Shema, which talks about um, the Lord your God um, is one. And it says, teach these things to your children um, as you go by the way, as you sit, as you rise. It says, put them on the doorpost of your home. Um, and it is this, this encompassing that, that our faith, our sharing, our um, telling the good news, it is not these one conversations that we come and we go through our you know, Romans road pamphlets. It is that we are incorporating the gospel into our life. Um, one that helps us remember that we need the gospel every day. I need to be reminded that I don't have anything in me that capable of obeying him um, over and over and over. And it's only through Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that I have anything good in me to share. But that we are talking about these in the moments of the day that um, his word almost becomes like our language, that it just flows out of us as we talk, as we teach our children. 
Y'all, if there is a child in your life anywhere, then you have a disciple to make. But I also um, want to encourage us that, um, and I'm going to talk about this in just a moment. Um, What is a disciple? Let's just talk about it now. Okay. What is a disciple? He says, go and make disciples. And I think this is something that we debate a lot in church is discipleship. What does it look like? What does the discipleship program look like? Um, And I think so much of what I believe about discipleship is that it is this thing that is this way of life that is incorporated in our day, um, day to day. It's not a, it's not a program. It's not a, um, you know, it's not discovering your gifts. I think being a disciple is knowing the word of God. And in fact, as I was kind of doing some research, so uh, Biblehub.com is one of the websites I use to kind of go back to original language. And they have on each page with a Greek word, some word study helps. And so it kind of helps um, you understand a little bit more of the meaning behind that word. So when you look up the word in Matthew um, 28 here that says make disciples, this is the word helps. This is what it says discipleship is, making a disciple. It's helping someone to progressively learn the word of God to become a matured, growing disciple, which literally means a learner, a true Christ follower. Um, To follow Christ requires us knowing his word. We have to know his word. We have to know what he calls us to. We have to know his character. We have to know who he is if we're going to follow his way. And so becoming a disciple is helping someone to progressively learn God's word. And um, we all have that call to do that. It is not just your Bible study leader. It is not just your, uh, your parent. It is not just your pastor. We all have this call toward discipleship. Um, I have in the background here, this fountain, that's these pots. Um, one of my leaders gave it to me a couple years ago because, um, there's a fountain at Disney Springs that has um, Mickey holding a pot and it the, the water pours into one pot and then it overflows into other pots and then it overflows into other pots and it just multiplies as it goes down. And God has used that fountain over and over in my ministry to help remind me what discipleship looks like that you are always supposed to be poured into and that you are always supposed to be pouring out, that we um, are always reaching both ways, both behind us and before us, and that we have the living water of his word flowing through us. That is what discipleship is. We must know his word. We must know his truth so that we can act upon his truth. Um, The Biblehub.com continues that it's helping a believer learn to be a disciple of Christ in belief and practice. Belief, knowing it isn't enough. And in fact, in Greek, um, where it talks about knowledge, it's not a separate head knowledge and heart knowledge. There is not a separation between the two. If you know it here, it it sinks here and it comes out here. And so it def, it it penetrates your mind, which penetrates your heart, which penetrates your actions. Um, there's no, there's no, um, difference, you know, it's not like, okay, I learned that now let me get it into my heart. Okay. Now let me put it out into my hands. Um, when you know it, you can't help, but take it to heart and take it to your actions. And so that to me is what discipleship is. The key is helping learn the word of God so that we may be mature believers who follow him 
in walk and obedience in his ways. And he says to, to make disciples of all nations, y'all, he's opening it up. This is good news for those of us who are not Jewish. Um, and that prophecy in Daniel says it too, that it is for all nations, for all languages, for all people. We are all invited into his family. We are all able to um, come to him. He opens salvation up to everyone. Um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were baptized um, as a symbol of that conversion. And so that concept would have been very familiar to them, this idea of converting to Christianity for them to being a Christ follower, that they would be baptized as a symbol of their death to self and resurrection in Jesus. Um, and doing so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit affirms again that Jesus is God, that he, uh, it affirms his deity. And then he says, teach them what I have commanded you. So again, we have this call and this harkens back again to Deuteronomy 6, that we need to teach the word of God. If we want to know what he's commanded, we have to know the word of God. We've got to know it in context. We've got to know it in truth. Um, we need to know it for ourselves. Secondhand knowledge, secondhand revelation doesn't change our lives the way that firsthand revelation does. Um, we cannot continue to snack on or to feast on other people's words and snack on his own. We must be willing to feast on his truth. Um, and um, we must point people to the truth of God's word. But that starts with us knowing the truth of his word for ourselves. And that's why groups like this are so important. When you come to the word and you meet in a small group, you guys can encourage one another toward truth, toward love, toward good works, toward who God is. We can encourage one another when we are filled with fear to look to Jesus, to allow our fear to melt away to worship. I could go on and on. <laughs> It's one of my favorite topics, if you haven't, haven't been able to tell yet. Um, and then he ends, I am with you always, even to the end of age. This is again pointing to Jesus as God. Um, God is omnipresent. He is with us always. Um, and uh, Hebrews 13, 5 points to Jesus again saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you always. Um, his presence, when you surrender your life to Jesus, he gives us this gift of the Holy Spirit and his presence is in us. He is in us and with us and before us and behind us and all around us. We have him. We have access to him because of his death. We have that because he rose again. So what now? Y'all, every prophecy fulfilled points us to God's faithfulness. When we see that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy, the characteristic of God that we draw a line to is his faithfulness. His faithfulness means that he'll do what he says, that he'll keep his promises. And so when we see this, we can trust that he will do what he says. And that means he's coming again. Right now we live in what's called the already but not yet. The, the victory has been won. Death has been defeated. But because he has not come back yet, we still experience this broken world. We still um, are living in the face of war and hate and sickness and cancer and pain and loss and death. And it's hard. And, and so what do we do? How do, what are we able to do now 
even though we still live in this space of already but not yet. I always like to talk about application in the context of God's character because God is faithful. I can trust his word. Um, and I think that I want to go back to that first Corinthians passage. Um, and I'm going to start back in verse 54 again, but this time I'm going to read through 58 because it gives Paul gives us this charge of what we are able to do because of the resurrection of Christ. Um, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that, because death has lost its sting and there is no victory and God has the victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, you're, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We can trust that he is faithful. And so because of that, we can remain firm in our faith when the hate, when um, the war, when the pain, when the sickness, when the loss, when the death comes, we can remain steadfast and immovable in our faith, completely grounded, trusting that his word is true. He is the resurrection and the life. We can continue to do what he's called us to do because we know that he's coming again because he is faithful to fulfill every promise. Y'all, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for um, your word. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who is faithful, who does what he says he will. And that because of your faithfulness to fulfill every prophecy, Lord, that death has been defeated, Satan has been defeated, and you sit in heaven in victory. And we no longer have to be slaves to fear. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. We no longer have to be slaves to the pain and the confusion of this world. Thank you, Lord, that we have hope, a sure, steadfast hope that does not put us to shame that you will do what you say you will. Lord, thank you that you came. Thank you that you opened the way. And thank you, Lord, that you are the living God who never leaves us and never forsakes us. It's in your name I pray, amen. What an incredible study this has been. I'm so thankful you've been part of it. Anytime we end a study, the natural question is, what's next? And for almost the last two years, we have been moving through scripture together, studying deeply and coming to his word. But this time, the what's next is a little bit of a different answer because God has called me to a break. And I may still podcast here and there over the summer, uh, but I'm expectantly and, and somewhat reluctantly, obediently <laughs> taking a step back to rest this summer. Uh, in the meantime, let me encourage you to keep doing what you've been doing, to come to God's word, to ask the right questions, to study his words first and foremost, and to gather with other women to talk about it. 
This year is flying by, so I'm sure it will feel like no time at all before we are back to it this fall. From the bottom of my heart, please know how deeply grateful I am for you and that you have been part of the Feasting on Truth journey. It wouldn't be, this ministry wouldn't be what it is without you. And I'm really looking forward to all that God has for the next chapter. So I'll see you real soon. Thank you.